Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTagg. This week, we have a special interview for you with the former First Minister of Northern Ireland, Arlene Foster, covering everything from the IRA assassination attempt on her father to the Brexit negotiations and her eventual downfall. I hope you enjoy it. I'm a shape water, so I'll say what I like. I'm in my own, and I'd say it anywhere. I don't care who you Mrs. Ross, why do you think it is that, you know, that Protestants and Catholics just can't live together in Belfast? There's nothing to keep Protestants and Catholics from living together, but they've lived together for years. But there'll never be any friendship between Protestant and Catholics again. These are some of the things that happened in Belfast yesterday. A machine gun attack on the army in Herbert Street. A crowd dispersed by troops in the Ardoin. An explosion in a bar at Louisa Street. One soldier shot in Butler Street, an explosion in Divis Street, a bazooka attack on the army in Leonardon Avenue, a bar blown up in the Shankill Road, wounding 27 people and killing two. It was an average day in Belfast. So that was a couple of news clips from Northern Ireland in 1970, the year that my guest here today, Arlene Foster, was born. It also gives a real glimpse, I think, into the start of the troubles that will obviously feature a lot in what we're going to discuss today. So Arlene, great to have you here. So let's start right from the beginning. You were born on 17th of July, 1970, in a little village in Fermanagh that I've actually been to. I went and had a look at the the house that you grew up in. Oh uh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what amazed me actually was just how close you were to the mm. border mm. with the Republic. And in fact, I think from from the farmhouse that you grew up in, you could see the Republic, mm. if I'm right. And I traveled to some of the Church of Ireland churches and you had to cross the border at one point to get into them. What are your memories well, of childhood? Yeah, so that probably was clock. Parish yes, Church that you yes, went so... to. I went to Adram C Parish Church, and actually now I'm in the House of Lords. That's my title, Foster of Adram C. Right, yeah. Um, that's where the title comes from. I mean, all of these little Church of Ireland's were built at a time when most of their congregation walked church. So right, that's yeah. why there are so many dotted around. And so we used to 
when my father was working and uh, there was only one car in the house, we used to walk to a church at Adramsea and it was a mile away. And that's where my primary school was. And there's a little orange hall at Adramsea as well. So that really, when I was growing up, was very much if you like the centre of my world because I went to school, I went yep. to church. Uh, the little orange hall is where you'd play badminton or went to church parties or whatever. So that little area is very important to me. It's very much, as I say, where I grew up until I was eight. So it's part of what made me. This is an area that is unique. I don't think very many people in Britain can understand it. Mm. Even in Northern Ireland, people who I speak to in Northern Ireland would say, Oh, she's from west of the ban. She's uh, she, she's different, and that's true, though, isn't it? Because you grew up both in a in a unique place and in a unique time. So you were born in 1970, and this is the very beginning mm. of the troubles. But I was first intrigued about how you saw Northern Ireland before the troubles. This is a place almost that is like a different state to the one that existed from 1998 after the Good Friday Agreement. It worked in a different way. Mm, mm. It had a prime minister, it had a House of Commons, and something completely different came in 98. I mean, what is your opinion of that of that, of that that state that existed, what, for 50 years from 1922 to 1972? Do you think it was as bad as the perception of it is now? No, I don't think it's as bad as the perception. I think that nationalism, republicanism have done a very good job in painting it in that fashion. I think if you go back to the creation of Northern Ireland, of course, that was a very traumatic time. Mm. A lot of families who were Protestant who lived on, quote unquote, the wrong side of the border mm. moved into Northern Ireland right. at that time. Into, your, into the place that you into, grew up. Yes, into the place where I grew up because they didn't feel safe in the new Republic of Ireland. So they left. And if you look at the figures in terms of the number of Protestants that there were, before partition and the number of Protestants that there are now, it went from something like 10% to 2-3%, which is the figure now. Right. So that was at the time of the creation of the state. And I think because the Republic broke away from the United Kingdom, the politicians at the time wanted to mirror what was happening in Westminster in terms of the House of Commons and the Upper House and Stormont was built in a very grandiose way and is probably the nicest parliament in the UK, I would say, because of the aspect of the huge gardens around it and all of that. And I would say to your listeners, if they ever go to Belfast, they should definitely visit Stormont Parliament buildings because it is a really beautiful place. So they had great ideas and great vision for what they wanted to achieve. But actually what happened was they just mimicked what was going on in Westminster, actually, for the most part. And then we came to the point where, of course, I wasn't born at this time. Civil rights marches happened. There was great unease within nationalism that their voice wasn't being heard. And we ended up in a place where we had the start of the troubles. And of course, the civil rights marches before the troubles started, a lot of what they had been asking for was granted. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then militant Irish republicanism took over from the civil rights campaign and and we ended up in a terrible period of what has been euphemistically called the Troubles. Just on on Northern Ireland in its first set, do you you look back and think it was a mistake to create a sort of mimicked version of Westminster that you sh- you should have just been part of yeah. the UK just 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 a normal part of the UK without any devolution well i i think what happened of course was the fact because there was a 
as you know, the government of Ireland Act, there was to be two different parliaments, one in Belfast and one in Dublin. Yeah. And the idea was that they would come together at some point. Yeah. Of course, that didn't happen because the parliament in Belfast wanted to maintain its links very strongly with the Westminster Parliament. But I think if we had have stayed, instead of having our own separate parliament in the UK structure, my own view is that it would have been better for Northern Ireland today. Yeah. Uh, and I know that's probably not a very popular view amongst historians or indeed politicians today, but I just think we were a place apart because we had a parliament when Scotland and Wales didn't have a parliament. So we were different yeah. uh, in terms of the UK, which I don't think was helpful at that time. Yeah, and we'll come back to this because this this debate rages again in the 70s and the 80s and even, even into the mm. 90s. This, uh, this division within unionism between the integrationists sure. who want to come back into uh, to be sort of equal part of the UK and devolutionists who, who are happy with a kind of place apart mm-hmm. settlement of sorts. But let's, go, let's go back to, to 1970 and your home on the border. And as you say, this is the environment which makes you. And many listeners won't know of your story. You've been open about it in the past. But you end up moving from this very small place into the local town, Listener Ski, yeah. when you're, what, nine? Is that right? Eight and a half. Yeah, I was born in July and we moved in the March, if you like. That. So what happened was my father was a member of the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the police. Mm. He also had a small farm holding, which my mother, my grandmother, all of us actually helped out on when my father wasn't around. Very much a community policeman. People would have went to him about different issues. He was well respected, got on very well with our neighbours. And on the 4th of January 1979, he was going out to put the animals in for the night, lock them into the bar Hmm. when the IRA were behind a wall and they opened up a gunfire on him, hit him in the head, skimmed his head and... He came crawling into the house on all fours and blood coming from his head. The IRA left. The thinking was that their gun jammed and that's why they didn't pursue him and follow him into the house. He came into the house. We were all ushered upstairs. I was eight. My brother was four. My sister was 14. My grandmother in her 80s at that time, my mother, all ushered up the stairs because my father had flares to alert security forces if he was under attack so put off the flare and in quite a short period of time nine minutes or something like that the police were there mm-hmm. didn't feel like nine minutes at the time I have to say when we were all lying on the floor in, in my mother and father's bedroom wondering what was going to happen next mm-hmm. but thankfully as I say my father survived and as a result of that the authorities said to my father look You've been attacked. It's likely you'll be attacked again, given where you live. You're very close to the border. And of course, when the terrorists left after the murder attempt, they left across the border, went straight across the border. And they said, look, you're going to have to decide, do you want to continue to live here? We will try and support you and put fences up and give you all that you need. Or we can move you away to Lisburn. Or somewhere like that. that somewhere, and that's over back in the east of Northern somewhere, Ireland. Somewhere far away from where we are now. Or the third option was to move into Listen Ski, which was just about nine miles away mm-hmm. and was felt to be, quote unquote, safer. So that's the option he took. And we were moved quite quickly 
on an emergency basis into a social housing unit in Lissonski until such times as my father was able to buy the property that my mother still is in today. And that's that's what happened on the 4th of January, 1979. I mean, and you say it was safe or safer. Well, safer, but, but quote I mean, unquote. Yeah, yeah. But, th- but this is still, for Manor, close to the border. This is yeah. in the southwest of, of mm. Northern Ireland. This is this is one of the most dangerous places at the time. As you say, going to Lisbon or going into the east of Northern Ireland, you would have been a more Protestant area. You would have felt mm. much safer. That I, I could understand as a parent why that would have been very attractive. But I mean, obviously you were attached to the... To well, the... my father was a Fermanagh man yeah. and he it was in his blood. And although my mother came from Belfast, came from Sandy Row actually, mm-hmm. uh, married my, my dad in 1957, my grandmother found it very difficult to move from the farm into a town environment. Right. Very difficult. And I just think he thought it would be too much to move away from Fermanagh. And so that's why we moved to Lissonski. In my understanding, you you think that the the shooter hmm. was Seamus yes. uh, McIlwain. You do you know that, or do you just think that? No, I I make that assessment given that he was unfortunately that he was quite young at the time. He was only sixteen, seventeen at the time. He went on to murder a number of other people in the area. Was it's like actually, more than ten or something? Yeah, he was or... convicted. He he then escaped and was latterly shot by the SAS in an operation near Rosslea where he was planning to murder somebody else. So, I mean, he was one of these people with a bloodlust. He he was murdering a lot of people in the Fermanagh area. But what I think is interesting for listeners is that in in that SAS operation, which 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 killed Seamus McElwain, yes, he was with Sean Lynch, yes. who went on to be the MLA, the member of the the Northern Irish Assembly, f- for where you live. So he he became yeah. Your, so I was an MLA for Fermanagh and South yeah. Road. We used to have six MLAs in Fermanagh and, in every constituency. That was reduced then to five. So I was one of the MLAs, and so was Sean Lynch. And do, but do you think he had anything to do I, with it? I simply don't know whether he was involved, but I know that he was very close to Seamus McElwain and they were in a cell, if you like. Yeah. It's called an IRA cell, where they worked together to frankly go out and cause mayhem and murder people. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if he confessed that he was part of the murder attempt on my father. How, do you, how does that make you feel? I mean, they're just, I mean, that doesn't exist at Westminster. No. Right? For, no. An ordinary, for an ordinary British politician. It doesn't politician. exist anywhere, I think. And that... I think is the challenge of the Belfast Agreement and we've just celebrated and commemorated and marked, take whatever one you want, of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. And I think sometimes people look at unionism as people who don't want to move on, as people who live in the past and who don't talk about what happened in the 70s and 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. but people were killed, murdered in the 70s, 80s and 90s by the very people who were now asked to share power with and run a government with Mm -hmm. in Northern Ireland. So I think people shouldn't be so glib about the fact that we are asked to do that and that that's the way the structures have been evolved and have been set down. Well, when I I came to Fermanagh, I went to Listener Ski and I I remember going to one of the hotels there and there was this uh, picture of the local, one of the Gaelic hurling teams, I think yeah. it was. And there was there was one of the players was a, a, guy, a guy called Graham. His surname was Graham. Yes. And as you, you'll know, he is the son of one of the three Graham brothers mm-hmm. who was murdered by the IRA in, in the area that you grew up in. So there's yes. three brothers all killed in the space of a few years. Yes. 
And there is a, there's a great book by a Colm Toybin called Bad Blood, in which he, he talks about this and how and that when they got the final Graham brother, yeah. one of the local priests heard the terrorist scream out with what he called like a war cry, like it was a kind of yeah. delighted cry that, that they'd finally got this brother. Yeah, that was in 1984, if my memory serves me correctly. I was 14 at the time and I knew Jimmy Graham. He was the last brother to be murdered. A nicer person you could not meet. He was in the Ulster Defence Regiment. He was also a school bus driver. And it was at a Roman Catholic school in Derlin that he was murdered. They came onto the bus and murdered him in a very vicious way. It is said that there were many shots put into his body. And 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 almost in a frenzied sort of way, so it goes to Colin Tobin's point about bloodlust, yeah, and and about getting an excitement about, about killing people. Well, that book that book is is fantastic, and mm. actually, Fintan O'Toole wrote a a brilliant piece, which I thought I'd just read out a section of, about this and and what you were saying, Arlene, about moving on or being stuck in the past, and how that's quite a glib sentiment. Yes. Finton writes, the IRA and the wider Catholic community is that has made Sinn Féin its political voice, likes to see the IRA campaign in retrospect as a, quote, war in the classic sense, a conflict in which soldiers were pitted against soldiers, mm. while loyalist paramilitaries killed Catholics out of psychotic sectarian hatred. Republican paramilitaries killed Protestants only because they were, in IRA speak, part of the imperial war machine. This formula magics away the inconvenient truth, as he puts it, that the murders of UDR men like the Grahams were not military operations, but conducted and experienced as sectarian killings. And what he goes on to say is that they were essentially a, a form of ethnic cleansing in yes. that area. That, that's, how, that's how you see it. It is how I see it, because if you take my father, for example, he was an only son with a farm. He had only one son. Right. And the fact that we had to move to Lissenski meant that my brother was not brought up on a farm. He was only four when we left. And therefore, he didn't have farming in, an, in his blood in that way because he had left the farm. And that then meant that we, they had moved, if you like, that family away from the border. And what they were creating was a Brit-free zone, mm-hmm. <laughs> as it were, yeah. so that people who were sympathetic to the United Kingdom would be moved away from the border and that they would have this sort of a buffer zone where there wouldn't be any Brits in inverted commas. Right. And, and you see that on the, where I live in southeast Fermanagh, you also seen it over in Garrison and Balik and Belcou, where farming families who were all very brave men who went out and joined the Ulster Defence Regiment to try and deal with terrorism were then targeted when they went home. And because they were targeted when they went home, these men thought, I have to protect my family. So they had to move away from the area. Yeah. And so you see that on numerous occasions right you, along that border. And do, do, you, do you agree with Fintan O'Toole's point that to some extent the, the Sinn Féin supporters haven't accepted that? And they no. haven't they haven't moved on in, in, in no, that No, they haven't because, I mean, as you probably are aware, the lady who wants to become the First Minister of Northern Ireland has stated that there was no alternative to what happened in the 70s and 80s. And that's how she explained people going out and murdering their neighbours. I mean, it right. really was a terrible time, Tom. And I mean, this characterization of loyalist terrorism being sectarian, targeting Catholics, and they did. Mm-hmm. But 
the IRA were actually only targeting people, not because they were Protestants living along the border and quite isolated and easy targets in that respect, but because they were part of the war, the British war machine, Yeah, well, which is just nonsense. Well, what, what Vinton writes is th- these killings, they were local, specific and intimate. Correct. The dead were neighbours in the small towns and villages of the borderlands. It was the familiarity of their routines, the ease of knowing mm-hmm. where they lived and worked that made them so easy to kill. And he, he thinks that there is this kind of guilt that hangs over the area because he tells this kind of evocative story of how there were these car crashes in the years afterwards mm. and local people were saying this is god's revenge on for the graham yes. killings yeah. so he has this sense that it's just hangs over the place what struck me actually was was that you were still there like you're still in in a skill and you've mm. with your kids you didn't have any security when i when i met you this is just right in the center of town mm. i suspect for me, I'd have run like I'd have been in. I'd have been in Britain. Or, of course, yeah. that's what the terrorists want you to do, because they use terror to push you out. Yeah. Uh, and I have to say, the community, and I'm very proud of the community, the Unionist community in Fermanagh, that they didn't resort to terrorism as a as a, in a response to what happened to them. Most of them either joined the police service or they joined the Ulster Defence Regiment on a part-time basis to protect. They didn't. They didn't react in a way that was sectarian. They were. It. It did lead. I have to say to something which I think has 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 lifted now in that there was a mistrust of your Catholic neighbours because you didn't know if they knew something. Were they not speaking up? Some of them were probably very frightened about speaking up. Mm. Has that not persisted, though? Well, I, I don't think... I think there's been an improvement in that respect, but there is certainly a truth in, in in this, that the IRA could not have operated in the local communities that they operated in without the Catholic community knowing that they were there. And I sometimes think about that, and I think, were they complicit in that? Did they think that it was okay to kill their Protestant neighbours or was it simply because they were afraid for their own lives and I think it's probably a mixture of the two and I guess this must be mirrored if you were a if you're a Catholic in the east of the country and the, and there were sectarian responses oh yeah uh, in, there wasn't in, in, that's in, why I'm in, saying in Fermanagh where yeah. we were under pressure there wasn't that response and that's why I, I, that I, I'm fear, incredibly proud in a way, that when, if you're well, in the majority over in I don't know East Belfast no. then, then you, you feel empowered to go and be sectarian in response I don't know whether that is the case I think Fermanagh people on the whole are very genuine neighbourly people and they were it was just such a shock to everybody that this could be happening in their own area and I think Despite the fact that my father had been attacked, he wanted to remain in the area because it was home mm-hmm. and, and he didn't want to move and he wasn't going to give in to terrorism. And he imbued that sense in me that you never give in to terrorism. And I, and I think that that is the right thing to do. And when I, when I was there, I was struck, and I, I don't think I'd fully appreciated it, and this might sound strange to you, but I hadn't, when I saw signs when you're driving in Northern Ireland and, and in Fermanagh and it says Brits out, Mm. And you were just referring to Brits there. Um, yes. I hadn't really thought of that meaning Protestant people in Northern Ireland. I just assumed it meant me or, <laughs> or uh, British soldiers. But when I was speaking to people in Fermanagh, they said, no, no, that means that means us. Yes. They, they want us yeah. out. 
I'm always struck by these labels of identity and how mm. they seem to have shifted over time. And I've noticed that you use Brits or British and Irish when you in in speeches and you and you sure. you have here. Whereas if you go back to the founding of Northern Ireland and original mm. unionists, they would have been Irish unionists. Yeah. And the whole point was to keep the whole of Ireland Well, Carson was the, was the Irish unionist. I mean, Carson right. was from Dublin. Yeah. And very proud of the fact that he was from Dublin and seen Dublin as the second city of the empire, as it were, and, and very much was upset very much upset by the fact that partition actually happened because he wanted to keep the whole of the island of Ireland within the United Kingdom and he's seen that as such a disappointment. But it's shifted and it's odd in a way because it, it leaves Northern Ireland as the only place in the UK that has that sort of binary like that that, that you're British and then what? Whereas I'm English and British and somebody else... No, well, you see, I'm Northern Irish and I'm British. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm using the phrase Brits to describe the mindset (laughs) of the IRA at that time. (coughs) But I have no difficulty describing myself as Northern Irish and and British. What about about Irish and British? There are many unionists who are happy to call themselves Irish and British. I don't call myself Irish and British simply because I'm not, I'm from the island of Ireland, yes, but I'm from the Northern Ireland part of it, as it were. And I mean, there are many different layers of identity in Northern Ireland as as people try and define us in terms of religion often. I think that that has become a less uh, relevant subject now with the secularization happening in Northern Ireland as it has right across the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. But I think culturally, so if I was to describe myself, I'm an Anglican, I'm from an orange background, I am Northern Irish, and I'm also British. So mm-hmm. there, there are many different levels to your identity. And I think that's the, the thing about the Union and the United Kingdom is you can have a whole range of identities all within the UK, all sitting quite happily together. The difficulty with the IRA is they were quite purist. They just wanted Irish Republicans. They just wanted Catholics. They didn't want to have the Brits as we were living in that area. Well, I guess, I mean, that's certainly true of, of those people who were going around killing. Absolutely, but, yeah. but there are Irish Republicans who would say the orange on the flag that is there for a reason. We're not sectarian. We're not a sectarian state. They would make the argument that actually the, the Irish Republic has been more successful at integrating Protestants in the South than the British state has been at integrating Catholics in Northern Ireland. Well, as I indicated to you, the Protestant population is so small in the Republic of Ireland. It's only about 2-3%. Mm. So, so do you just think it's easier? So yeah. there's no difficulty in accommodating 2-3% of the population. I don't think that's an issue. And I mean, we shouldn't forget as well, if you look at the Irish Constitution of 1937, it was heavily influenced by the Roman Catholic Church at that time. Now, there have been huge changes to that, mm-hmm. obviously, with a lot of referenda that have happened, particularly on abortion and divorce and the place of women in society and all of those things. But that, that back at the creation and the subsequent drafting of the 37 Constitution. The Catholic Church was very much in control in the Republic of Ireland. I think that's why a lot of people made the journey into Northern Ireland. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. And the big debate that I alluded to a bit earlier in the 70s and the 80s is between integrationism and yes. devolutionism. This is the Enoch Powell would have came to Northern Ireland in the 70s and he made this case that you've got to stop pursuing devolution, special status within the United Kingdom. You need to integrate back fully into the UK, get rid of all your special status. And loyalty to the crown and meant loyalty to, to whatever the parliament decides. Mm-hmm. That, that was his central argument. And he was rejected in that by... Paisley and Mm. most unionists who said, no, no, because if we're loyal to Parliament, then presumably we have to be loyal to Parliament if it says, off you go, you're no longer in the union. There's Mm. a fundamental tension there. And that, I think, has, has stayed within unionism all the way up until today. We're still in this this tension, this struggle between what does unionism do when the Westminster Parliament tells it to do something that it doesn't want to do. Sure, sure. And we've seen that over some of the social issues in Northern Ireland, most recently on abortion. Yeah. So we now in Northern Ireland have the most liberal abortion regime in the whole of the United Kingdom, yet we're the, probably the most socially conservative part of the UK. So it's, mm-hmm. it's Catholic incredible. And, Catholic and Protestant. Catholic and Protestant. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's an interesting scenario when some of my Catholic constituents in Fermanagh were supporting me on that issue (laughs) when I was in the assembly. Who would have thought that somebody would have been supporting DUP MLA on that basis? But they were (laughs) because that was the most important issue for them, actually. And that's that's the issue. So, yes, it is. It's a very interesting point. And actually, during the 1980s, I was interested in that whole debate as well. Bob McCartney, who was a QC at the time, who later became the MP for North Down, was very much an advocate for Campaign for Equal Citizenship. And he had a very good platform. It led to uh, the Conservative Party nearly taking the MP seat in North Down, actually, on, on that sort of a basis as well. So it was a live debate in the 1980s because, of course, at that time, we had been without a government. I think the 82 Assembly had been the last iteration of trying to get devolved government up and running again. Mm-hmm. So it was a real conversation at that time. And actually, Jim Molyneux, the leader of the Austrianist party, was quite interested in all of that about integration. He was more of an integrationist probably than a devolutionist at that time. But then we fast forward to the Labour government coming in, Scotland and Wales both having devolution. And we were the only part of the kingdom without devolution. Well, there was one big uh, bit of the kingdom. Yeah, that well, didn't of have, course, yeah. England. But Scotland and Wales had devolution. And of course, at that time, we had moved into the position of trying to find a way of moving from the ending of violence and the ceasefires to a situation where we could have government again in Northern Ireland. And that's what led up to the Belfast Agreement. But don't you think, in a way, the very fact that unionists in Northern Ireland kind of rejected that integrationist idea 
Well, I yeah. don't think people, the union's people rejected it. I think the unionist oh. leadership at the time probably didn't go down that route. Paisley in, yeah. in particular. But, well, I mean, that's going to be a tension that goes all, all the way through, right, till today. Yeah. You've still got differences between unionist leadership and unionist mm-hmm. grassroots. But it strikes me that the fact that Paisley and those around him rejected that and mm. were devolutionists points to the fact that Northern Ireland is different to the other bits of the of the UK. They they were like, no, we don't want we don't want that. We we want our we want Stormont. We want our own when you have control. To, yeah, but you have to look at the context of that because we'd had our own Parliament as it was then from nineteen twenty two. Yeah. So it was something that we'd had for fifty years. Then it was taken away. And I think people harked back to wanting to have their own parliament again. And that's why they wanted devolution and they wanted to be able to have decision making at a, at a lower level than at Westminster. And that whole idea of subsidiarity, the whole European yeah. concept of taking decisions at a lower level because you're more responsive to what people want. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what Dr. Paisley probably was focused on at the time, wanting to get devolution up and running again on that. But he would have wanted, as you probably know, devolution back. In, in in the way in which it was back yeah without then. The, without the power sharing bit. correct yeah well have you changed on that just before we before we move on I mean because you were more of an integrationist are you now more of a devolutionist I think I am from the point of view of having been in the position of being a minister and being able to be responsive to the needs of local communities it is important that we have a devolved administration in Stormont however there is also a need to be more connected into the UK system overall. And when you have, as we have in Scotland, SNP in control there, Wales, we have the Labour Party in control, Then there, and, and if you have a Conservative government of Westminster, there is that tension then mm-hmm. as to how that works. Uh, and you could see that over the Brexit negotiations where the SNP were looking for one thing, Wales were looking for something else. We didn't have a government at the time because <laughs> Sinn Féin had left. Well, the UK so the, system is a mess. It is a mess. And I, and I think there's a need to... We, there was an attempt at the Joint Ministerial Council to try and find a way where we could have better relationships and a, and, and a framework to deal with those relationships between Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and Westminster. But obviously I'm not there now, so I'm not sure how that's progressing. Were there any good ideas? Because, I mean, it just looks in, intractable to me. No, I don't think it is intractable. I think if you have the proper processes in place, people are still going to disagree, obviously. But the reality is Parliament is supreme and therefore the Westminster government will always have that priority. <laughs> which, however, which we're seeing should... with the Windsor agree- Agreement yeah. now. Yeah. And, and therefore, but there should be a respect for the devolved administrations because people elect governments there to do a job locally and therefore there needs to be respect from Westminster back into Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland as well. So we've taken the story up until, well, we've, we've touched on the Good Friday Agreement, so let's, let's, let's go there. So you were there on the night mm. of the discussions and this is an extraordinary moment in, in mm-hmm. history. You were there for the UUP at the time. Sure. And you, I think, came, as I understand it, you were considering it heavily I think that, I mean it was right to consider it it yeah. was right to look into the details of it at the time and then you and then you decided not to support it sure talk me through the the reason your reasoning so in terms of the negotiations I've always said that David Trimble was able to achieve on the constitutional issues a good position in relation to Northern Ireland in terms of the consent principle mm-hmm. so in other words Northern Ireland would not be put out of the union 
and you talked about it earlier, supremacy of parliament, would they just get rid of Northern yeah, Ireland? Right. So the, the, he was able to put into the Belfast Agreement that it was for the people of Northern Ireland to decide whether they were in the United Kingdom or leaving the United Kingdom. Was and it a fear, was, sorry, just on that, that they actually the threat came from Westminster as well? No, I, I don't think it was a fear, but I think he was right to underscore the guarantee right. in the Belfast Agreement. And to me, that was an achievement. David was very academic. Mm-hmm. He was very focused. I think that was his strength, but also his weakness, because on some of the other issues, prisoner releases, reform, and subsequent dismantling of the RUC into the PSNI, the accountability mechanisms between the assembly and the executive, and just that whole feeling that what had happened over those 28 years before, 30 years before, the victims were just going to have to suck it up and move on. There was very little about victims in the Belfast Agreement. And as I say, they were expected to watch as terrorists left prison and yeah. actually, in some occasions, became MLAs and became members of the government. Yeah. And so that was the principle. So for me, it was morally wrong. Yeah. Morally objectionable. And unfortunately, Tom, some of that has fed through to what we're still seeing today in relation to the treatment of victims, in relation to the treatment of former terrorists, and in relation to the whole structure of how we deal with the past. There's rewriting of history going on. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned it earlier about Sinn Féin and the IRA wanting to paint them as soldiers and all of that, where in actual fact, they were just criminals going around in the dead of night, placing bombs under people's cars so that when they went out in the morning, they blew up or shooting people in the back of the head as they arrived home from work. There was a line shortly afterwards that was, uh, it goes something like, the Republicans at the time were too smart to admit that they'd lost and the Unionists weren't smart enough to trumpet that they'd won. Yeah. I mean, looking at it now, do you think that's wrong, actually, that that unionism now is in a pretty bad spot 25 years after after the Good Friday Agreement? I mean, do you... Do you, how do you look back at your own decision not to vote for it? Do you think you were right? And and do you, do you think unionists did win in that negotiation? I think they won on the constitutional issue. I don't think we won on the moral issues of allowing prisoners who had committed some of the most heinous crimes to walk free and the consequential legacy issues that we're dealing with today as a result of that. So if you do something that you think at the time, is worth it, in inverted commas. Mm-hmm. It's only worth it if those people who have been let out don't go on to try and continue to justify what they did during those years. And that's what's happening, Tom. I mean, we have members of parliament from Sinn Féin going down to events to commemorate and celebrate so-called volunteers who went out and murdered their neighbours. So it wasn't worth it then, in a way. So what I'm saying to you is on the constitutional issue, mm-hmm. that... That was, that was there, and, and we should note that. And we should say that was good for unionism. But on on the, on those issues around legacy, there's a huge issue still to be dealt with. And unless and until, and I don't think Sinn Féin will do this because their whole ethos is about justifying what happened during 70s and 80s and 90s, then what was it all about? 
Well, I mean, Sinn Féin, in a way, they're the most successful political party, or certainly on the on the island of Ireland. They are now the biggest party in Northern Ireland. They they look like they're going to be the biggest party in the Republic. Why would they change course? They they look like they're they're on the way to to getting everything they want because they they change their message depending on their audience. You will very rarely hear somebody from Sinn Féin, the Republic of Ireland, talk about glorifying murderers in the way that they do in Northern Ireland. But their base in Northern Ireland, their core voters in Northern Ireland, continue to expect them to do that. Perhaps their core. I, don't, I mean, they must have got far out of their core now, though, to be to have they the support have, that they because, have. And, and that must in part yeah. be because of the failures of unionism or, or no, even I th- I, I think moderate nationalism to appeal to them. I think it's because they are very disciplined in relation to their messaging. You will never get a Sinn Féin member on who doesn't repeat, repeat, repeat the same thing as the person who was on the, the day before has said. So their messaging is very, very, very strong. But my complaint, I suppose, is that they're not challenged behind that messaging. Where's the substance of it? And they just repeat. I mean, I, I'll give you an example. Michelle O'Neill was on Radio Ulster the other day talking about how intolerable it was that we didn't have government in Northern Ireland. And when she was asked about the fact that she had stayed out of government for three years, she said that she wanted to deal with where we are today. Right. Sorry. <laughs> you kept us out of government for three years. And this three-year period was... On RHI. Yeah, and when you, when you were leader. I, when I was first minister. And I mean, she repeated a fallacy about RHI, which again wasn't challenged. So I'm she sorry. said that the renewable heat incentive scheme was overspent by 500 million. It was not overspent by 500 million. It was overspent by 33.8 million. And this and brought down your your or yes. this brought, brought down power sharing in what in yeah. what year again? It was two thousand well twenty seventeen, the very start of twenty seventeen, January twenty seventeen. I mean, this must be the this must be one of the most difficult periods of your political life. That that because at the same time, Martin McGuinness mm. dies, as so you've you've had to do something which I I can't imagine. It must have been personally quite wrenching for you to you you had to as leader of the DUP by this point so you've left the UUP over yes. after after the good friday yes. agreement well you, 2003 2003 yeah and you've joined the DUP and then you've become leader and you've gone into you 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 have to go into power sharing with Sinn Féin by by this point and Martin McGuinness who was a an IRA terrorist he was yes. he was a member of the IRA in Derry and so that must that a that must have been difficult for you and then he dies and you have the choice about whether to go to his funeral, yes. and you go to the funeral, and you're you're clapped into the into the church. I mean, how how did you feel at the time? All of that was a very difficult time because if I go back to the decision of Sinn Féin to pull down the executive, we could have dealt with the difficulties around the RHI piece, the renewable heat incentive scheme, whilst keeping government going. Of course, we could have. There have been overspends of a far greater magnitude in Northern Ireland, which haven't caused the downfall of the government. But we've had this, we had the situation where, unfortunately, Martin McGuinness had become quite unwell. I think it was looked upon as an opportunity to reset, in inverted commas. They could make me into some sort of villain. They, they came out with this whole tagline of respect, quality and integrity, which they repeated ad nauseum. And... They were successful in, in probably villainizing me in that way, aided and abetted by the mainstream media. 
And so it was a very difficult time, obviously not the most difficult time because COVID came along in 2020 and that was most definitely the most difficult time of my political career. Let's just spend a bit of time on, on Martin McGuinness. So. Yeah, so, so the, the decision to go to the funeral was one that I had to make for myself and myself alone. And I had colleagues, I had friends who certainly did not want me to go to that funeral, mm-hmm. who felt that it was the wrong thing to do given everything that had happened, particularly given the fact that he was unashamedly a member of the IRA. But I, I take the decision as the former First Minister, as I was at that stage, that I had worked with this man in the executive since it came back in in 2007. And it was a respect as much to his community as it was to him because he had passed away. And I wanted to say to his community that I did respect them and I respected that he was their Deputy First Minister and he was their person of leadership in that place. So I took the decision to go. Did did you ask your mum? I had a discussion with my mum. I had a discussion with my bishop. I thought about it. I prayed about it and I thought it was the right thing to do. There are some there's been a kind of change in perception of Martin McGuinness since he died among unionists that I speak to. Sure. Some who look back and think, actually Northern Ireland needed somebody like him, somebody who was strong and could pull Sinn Fein into government, make the decisions mm. necessary, make the compromises necessary. And actually Moving into this world that we're now in post Martin McGuinness, and it's all just got harder because it's a younger generation, mm. and and actually you needed those people who had gone through that. Well, I can understand that perspective, and certainly he was somebody that had respect within the Republican movement because of his background. There's no doubt about that. I think he had been on a journey during his time as Deputy First Minister. If you look at clips from the 70s and 80s of Martin McGuinness and his strident tone and his anti-British rhetoric that came out at that time and then compared to Martin McGuinness going on a trade mission with Peter Robinson or myself and talking about people should invest in Northern Ireland. I mean, this was a man who was involved in the IRA and who wanted to destroy Northern Ireland. So he had been on his own journey and I suppose it is only right that I acknowledge that. But I think the thing that a lot of unionists noticed when he passed away was the fact that on his grave is the fact that he was an IRA volunteer. Right. Yeah. And and that, that I think, is something that a lot of people noticed. What do you make of all this insinuation that somehow the British state saw McGuinness and Adams as people that, if not control sort of guide towards the top because they were somebody who would make they were people who would make compromises and they they had information that they allowed the hardliners to sort of be bumped off or to go elsewhere well i mean i just can't comment on that because i'm not inside the mind of what goes on but there's certainly plenty of rumors about the deep british state and and, and what went on are they believed in, in Northern Ireland? Um, I think they are to a certain extent, yes, but I, I mean, obviously I'm not able to talk about the veracity of them or otherwise. Tell us what 
what happened as you as you see it when you had this sort of re- re- how would you describe it a rebellion from within the from within your party mm. to remove you as leader and and Edwin Poots is elected who, yeah. who who has a kind of Liz Truss style leadership he's there and he's gone very quickly what yes. you you still feel quite angry about that period no I don't feel angry about it because I think what you have to do is accept that this is what has happened obviously I was very disappointed that people hadn't come to speak to me about it. This came out of the blue. You didn't, completely you didn't, out of the you, blue. You didn't know it was coming at uh, all? No, I definitely didn't. And I think what COVID did was separate people out from having those conversations that you should be having from leader to member. And because we were all on Zoom calls instead of being in a meeting room, Right. It meant that you weren't having those conversations and probably picking up on things that you should be picking up on. So, no, I didn't, not only I didn't expect it, but I didn't know it was coming. And the first I knew of it was that one of my MLAs who had been telephoned to sign this letter, which, by the way, I still haven't seen. <laughs> yeah, right, okay. Of MLAs asking for me to stand down. She, she And she said no. And she telephoned me. And I I will always remember it because I'd just been to the installation of my new bishop, actually, in, right. in, in Clocker. Well, Diocese of Clocker. And I'd come home and I took the call. I said, what? <laughs> what is going on? And I then phoned some of my officials. They knew nothing about it. And then the next day, it just developed from there. And obviously, the people who were behind the letter and getting people to sign had been speaking to the newsletter and had said that this was coming and blah, blah, blah. And so I had to make a decision. Do I stay and fight right. and try to, or, and I'd just been through the whole COVID piece. And as I say, that was a, a very, very challenging time. Who was the um, ringleader of this? Edwin Poots, Ian Paisley, people like that. Right. So they... They not, not, not no, no. So they had been able to get these signatures, and there was only about five, six people who hadn't signed. I was told in the MLA group, and so I said, "Look, it's time for me to go." And what, what um, what's the principal reason then? Do you think? Oh goodness, I think a range of reasons. I think the Northern Ireland Protocol and the fact that it had been implemented. And all of the promises from Boris that that wouldn't happen and we wouldn't be worse off. The protocol started to be implemented in January of 2021. And it was a real challenge. And we were trying to deal with the challenges as they came up and go to government and seek changes, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the protocol played a part. I think there are still some within the DUP who I was an Anglican. I was a female. Was it time for me to go? Was I too liberal? I don't know whether that is the case. I'm not sure there's too many people in the mainland would see me as a liberal, <laughs> Tom, but there you go. But they also, people in the mainland, wouldn't know what you're saying about being an Anglican. They wouldn't even clock, I don't think, that what you're saying is that there was a sort of intra-Protestant yeah. divide within the within yeah. the DUP, and you're, I think you're saying that there was non-Anglicans. And I mean, that hadn't been the case from the time that I joined the DUP and Dr. Paisley, who was the head of the Free Presbyterian Church, had welcomed me in with open arms and that it had never been an issue 
Is it again an, an, an east-west, an, an east-west no, divide issue? No, I, I don't think it was an east-west divide issue. I mean, it's very difficult to put my finger on what it was actually. And of course, if people had to come to me and had the conversation, I would know <laughs> what right. it was about. But I don't. So that's where it is. But look, I mean, I'm not angry about it because I I take the view that if you are angry, if you're bitter about what happened, then it's eating you up. It's not doing anybody else any damage, but it's it's having an impact on you. So I think the important thing to do was to leave. And I took the decision that not only would I leave the leadership, I would leave the assembly because I, I didn't mm-hmm. fancy sitting around on the back benches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I would leave the party as well because if so many people had felt so strongly in the assembly party I found it difficult to see how I would go back to the assembly yeah. party and be a part of that well Brexit is clearly was clearly a big part sure. of that so we should about that because it's still this ongoing issue and it, and I think the fascinating thing for me about Brexit when you're thinking about Northern Ireland it has all of these historic connotations that mm-hmm. or, or you can pull at these different strings whether it's integrationist or, or devolutionist or the fact that you've grown up on the border and then this comes all the way to define your first ministership and how it's how challenging it it was this was the issue so after after the brexit referendum in 2016 then you have Theresa may come in and the the i think the first big intervention you make as i as i remember comes in december sure. uh, 2017. december 2017 mm. This is after Theresa May's election. She's got no majority and you've signed a confidence and supply agreement with the Conservative Party. You're keeping them in power, essentially, in government. She goes off and she negotiates what the agreement that has really bound the British state from that point on. And in that agreement, it says that under whatever happens, Northern Ireland will be aligned with the republic no border i think is not the no physical border well there's yeah there's a number there is a number of yeah. things that she commits to in that yeah. but she, she's already committed to no no border at all hasn't she yeah. she's made that verbal yeah. commitment no no physical border mm-hmm. on the on the island of ireland and then she she signs this agreement which kind of uh, mm-hmm. ratifies that and i think the key line is that northern ireland will remain aligned you ring her up yeah. and tell her that this is not going to be acceptable to the yes. DUP. How did you find out about about it? And then and then t- t- talk to me well, about that conversation. We didn't find out about it from Theresa May. <laughs> I think that's the first thing to say. So she was just going to sign it and then... Yeah. And so we found out about it from European contacts. And so I, I what, said to her... In the Republic? Her, no, no. No, not in the Republic. Uh, and I mean, the, the relationship between ourselves and the Republic and the way in which the Republic pushed the whole issue knowing the implications it would have for Northern Ireland is a whole other podcast, I have to say, Tom. Well, there, there, are, there are, of course, people yeah. in the, in Dublin who were urging caution as well of their own government and who sort of knew and who were shocked that the, the UK government had signed up yes, to what they it were. did. And they couldn't believe their luck when the UK government did sign it. So I said to her that we couldn't... So you, uh, ring, you ring her up what, on her mobile? Yeah. And she comes out of her lunch, I think she was having right. <laughs> at that time. And I said we couldn't accept it. And so she comes back. There's then a week of negotiations. What does she say to you? I think she was quite shocked that we had a difficulty with it. But the whole point... Well, exactly. Be... The whole point about the confidence and supply agreement was that 
from a Northern Ireland perspective, from an from, first of all, from a, from a nation perspective, we wanted to support her to try and get Brexit done. But of course, in that respect, it was to protect Northern Ireland as well. Because you the, supported in, Brexit. In, yeah. So in all of the Northern Ireland, and, and by the way, this whole thing that it was a surprise that the DUP under me supported Brexit. The DUP have always been anti-European, right from their inception. As was Sinn Féin. Yeah, as were Sinn Féin, but they did a flip-flop, as they do <laughs> a number of issues, from abortion to everything else. So, I mean, this suggestion that I, out of the blue, decided that we would become Brexiteers. <laughs> We've always been anti-European, always, right the whole way through. So, Did you um, not worry, though, just quickly on that, did yeah. you not worry about the, the implications in the border? The reason I voted for Brexit was I had been the Minister for the Economy for seven years and I'd seen the way in which the dead hand of Europe had been negative in relation to innovation and enterprise. The fact that we couldn't intervene to help companies because of state aid rules. And of course, the irony is we still have those state aid rules in Northern Ireland as a result of the protocol. Mm. And one of the reasons why I voted for Brexit, but in any event. And, and therefore... It was to have sovereignty back in the UK because I'd been to Brussels, I'd seen the way they operated, and I frankly didn't like it. And but I thought you'd it also was a been, real drag on Northern Ireland. But you'd also been to Dublin, and you see the wealth there now, and you see, the, you know, have you been to other parts of the Republic of Ireland? Oh, but the Republic is much wealthier now than than Britain. When I go, that it, it feels much wealthier. Well, you're obviously in different parts to when I go to the Republic of Ireland, Tom. But I mean, it is wealthier than the North, Northern Ireland, isn't it? Uh, well, if we didn't have the subvention from the United Kingdom government, there would be difficulties there. There absolutely would. And you have to understand that up until very recently, the Republic of Ireland was a net beneficiary from the European Union. So mm -hmm. actually the money going from the United Kingdom into the European Union was then coming back into the Republic of Ireland to have right, all of yeah. those nice roads that we now have. <laughs> they definitely but, have good roads. Yeah, yeah, so they're now net contributors for the very first time, right. actually, the Republic of Ireland since Brexit happened. Yeah, so you, you've you've long been Eurosceptic. And, and not uh, just me, the whole party's yeah. long been Eurosceptic. That's the point I was trying to make. What about the accusation then that the, that is levelled that the, the primary motivation is to distance Northern Ireland from the Republic and therefore keep it, guarantee its place in the Union? No, I don't think that was the primary mission. It was about whether the United Kingdom should leave the European Union and us as part of the United Kingdom, I felt it should. And that was the reason why we voted in that way. So then, then Theresa May, she takes your call, she goes away for a week and then... No, no, she comes home, there's negotiations in London for a week. We try to deal with some of the difficulties in the text. We get some changes to the text with hindsight, probably not as many as we probably needed for the future negotiations. Right. And then, of course, she is brought down and Boris Johnson comes along and makes a whole range of promises, which aren't kept. Yeah. And, and we end up in the position that we are with the protocol. So when you look back, what is the lesson that you draw? That should you have backed May and got a, a better deal than the one you eventually got? In terms of when? Well, uh, I mean, we did back May up until the time that she was taken out by the Tory party. Or voted for the voted for the agreement that she had, no, which was, I guess, no, softer. Which, which is the cause of all of the problems that we have today. I mean, the genesis of the protocol mm -hmm. is in her negotiation stance. Well, yeah. No, no, I, I, I mean, I, that's, I accept, yeah. that's where we are because of what she agreed at that time uh, back in 2017 is the reason where we are here today.
So then the the lesson that you draw really is that you should have been harder from the start. The lesson is that we should have pushed to be more involved in the negotiations, which she didn't allow us to get into. And the lesson is that we should have probably pulled the plug in terms of the confidence and supply agreement. We wanted Brexit. Is that your biggest regret? It is actually. We wanted Brexit to happen for the whole of the UK. We were looking at the wider national picture. We were trying to stay with it to make sure that it happened. And all the while, Theresa May had basically sold the pass in relation to Northern Ireland. And that caused us to be where we are today. And then you, as you feel, Johnson did the same. And then yeah, presumably... Because, because of the, the, the day was really cast then. And he then continued on the trajectory, made a lot of promises in relation to, oh, well, don't worry about that. We'll deal with that. We'll just ignore it and all of this sort of thing. And we knew. Do you not feel duped by that, him? That was, I, mean, you I don't feel duped because we knew what was going to happen. We warned him what was going to happen. We spoke to HMRC. We knew what was going to happen. He dismissed it all. Yeah. But um, he, was cheer- he was cheered by like DUP Well, members. that was before he made the deal, of course. Right. That was before he made the deal. He wouldn't be cheered now, I guess. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and then she, and, I mean, the, the annoying thing is I, I still have a good relationship with Boris. Yeah. I don't fall out with people over things. Likely, but I do feel terribly let down. And I think it was part of the reason why I was taken out as leader and taken out as first minister, I have to say. And then Sunak comes in and the and he has negotiated I think improvements in, in mm. some ways on, on the Johnson deal, the Stormont break, these kind of mm. things. What's your view now? Like where should the party go on this? Well, I mean, I'm not in the party anymore, and I, I think there are negotiations and talks. But you were part of this advisory going. panel. I was you? part of the advisory panel. I mean, th- we essentially, I, I mean, it's a confidential document. It hasn't been published. Just I, so, I the, so the audience know, you, you, it was yourself and Peter Robinson and some other sort of unionist grandees who came together and advised the party and what the grassroots of unionism no, I think was what, thinking. What we did was we did a consultation exercise, listened to a lot of people pulled it all together and then give it back to the party leader and, and, and his team to say, here's what people are thinking and here's what the problems are, actually. Talk me through those. Well, as I say, the document Roughly. is confidential, <laughs> so I, I'm not going to get into that. But to say that the Windsor framework, from my perspective, is an improvement on the protocol, but there are still many difficulties with it in terms of practical issues and of course that issue that goes to the heart of the protocol around the place of Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom and I think that's really important. So what? So, so the DUP is now facing this situation where it is not going back into power sharing until the UK government deals with its complaints about the Windsor Agreement. It's not just their complaints, it's the people who are being very clear that there are difficulties with the Windsor framework, and it's yeah. not just the DUP that they're saying that. But yeah, all, I mean, I think all unionist all unionist parties were opposed to the protocol, but I think the UUP are now in favour of going back into. Oh, uh, they're in favour of going back into power sharing. Yes, I'm not sure they're in favour of the Windsor framework. Right, but but I think they still feel that there's difficulties there. But this, and I mean, th- therein lies the problem because if you go back into government, you're actually implementing European laws. Right. That, well, you can pull the brake. That we haven't. Yeah, well, you'll be pulling the brake every day of the week, probably. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's the problem. Well, why not go in and pull the brake? Yeah. Because if you, well, if you pull the brake... Well, that leads to more instability, well, Tom, in all seriousness. Well, it might lead I to mean, a border on the island of Ireland, yeah. un- under the terms of the deal, as far as I understand it. 
you, you might what? It, it might lead to a border with the Republic. If you pull the brake on a certain piece of legislation and the UK say we're not applying that in Northern Ireland, well, then you've suddenly got two different yeah. standards on the yeah. island of Ireland. Yeah. So you're back to the beginning. But you've it, kind it, of got but what it you also, wanted. But it also doesn't deal with the complexities of the fact that we still have a, a large number of European laws already in existence in Northern Ireland and which don't apply in Great Britain now. And, uh, what, and, if and you, therein lies a difficulty as well. Yeah, but if you were leader now, you, and we are where we are, what does unionism do from this point? Well, I'm not going to second guess the leader of the DUP, certainly not. I wouldn't have liked other people to have done it on me, and I'm certainly not going to do it on him. I think there are things that he will know, talks that he's having, that I know nothing about. So therefore, he has to make the judgment and then bring his party with him, whatever judgment he makes. I mean, one one option is to just wait it out, isn't it? Is to wait it out until the next UK general election. In comes the Labour Party and, hey, encourage them to align with Europe on various things. And, and then there's think, no border. And do you think that's going to be popular in the British mainland? Well, who, who I don't, voted to that's not, come uh, out of dynamic alignment with the I'm not European saying it's Union. the right decision. I'm saying it's an option, isn't it? It's an option. Well, look, there are many options out there. But as I say, I'm not going to second guess the leader. He, he has to make his decisions. But one of the pressures on unionism now is that you have to make Northern Ireland work. Sure. So, you, so you, you're so you faced with this terrible decision of you go in and you implement something that you think is pulling you away from yeah. from the rest of the UK. Or you don't go in and you prove to nationalists in Northern Ireland that Northern Ireland doesn't function and it has to be ruled under some kind of special measures from Westminster or however it's going to be ruled, but it's not ruled under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. And so that that's a difficult decision. There's no easy, there's no easy there's option There's there. no easy options to any of this. And I think the best solution is for our government to listen to the concerns that are there, try and deal with those concerns and then have Stormont back up and running again because Northern Ireland needs its own devolved administration. We've talked about that earlier on. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's the right thing to have in terms of economic development in particular and health reform, which is so badly needed in Northern Ireland. 52% of our budget is spent on health, right? which is an enormous amount of money and, and continually... Uh, people are looking for more money for the health service instead of having reform to go alongside that to try and deal with those issues. So there are huge issues to be dealt with in the Northern Ireland executive. Therefore, we do need it back and we do need to send the message that Northern Ireland works within the union. And to do that, we have to have a devolved administration. So I do hope that the government is able to come forward and to provide whatever it is that the DUP needs. And then finally, just sort of turning to the, the, the long future then. So... Northern Ireland has to function. The UK has to function. Sure. Right now, the whole the whole system doesn't look like it's functioning very well. Large parts of the UK are poor outside of the southeast, sure. north of England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. These are poor places in comparison to our European neighbours. Manchester, Belfast, Glasgow. They're not they're not as wealthy as Amsterdam or Munich or any of these comparable European cities. This is a kind of failure of the UK state. And I've, I, the more I think about it, the more I think this is another challenge for the union itself. It's just not successful enough at the moment. And this well, is... I, I mean, I don't accept that premise, Tom, I have to say. I think the UK is incredibly successful. And you only have to look at the fact that we were able to have the vaccine rolled out in the fashion that we were. It's not just... It's about dealing with things as they come along. And the fact that we were able to roll that vaccine out and people in Enniskillen had it at the same time as people in London had it, I think was a huge success. Actually, mm. our reaction to world events is still very much 
something that we take the world stage on. People still look to the UK in respect of leadership. And we've seen that over Ukraine as well. But obviously and we have economic, we have opportunities in the economy. And I just think we need to get past the psychodrama of are we rejoining the European Union? Are we going to forge our own path as a sovereign nation? And because that's what the electorate wants us to do. But the bubble here at Westminster is still in the space of trying to say, oh, actually, it'd be good if we just got back in. Well, you've got two psychodramas in Northern Ireland, right? You've got, are we are we going to yeah. join the European Union? Are we going to rejoin that? No, and well, you've got a constant growth in support well, for well, Unfortunately, we, haven't, to- we right. haven't totally left the European Union in Northern Ireland, and that's the, the drama that's happening there. Right. And in terms of the, the second issue that you've raised, yeah. there, I mean, there is an increase in support. After poll after poll shows that there is nowhere near enough support for United Ireland. Mm -hmm. Just because somebody votes in a particular way at an election does not mean that they would vote for United Ireland. But that is absolutely not the case. And if you look at any of the polls that come out, there is nowhere near the justification for United Ireland. You know that as well as I do. And so this this idea that you take the fact that Sinn Féin is the largest party with, what is it, 30-something percent Mm -hmm. of the... Yeah. That is not... If you look at the overall trends in terms of I, yeah. nationalism and unionism, there hasn't been a huge change. But I can understand why unionists might be, and and there are plenty, there are plenty of unionists in Northern Ireland who are worried about this. When it, well, they're worried about it because they're told they need to be worried about it on a day and daily basis so by the mainstream media. No wonder they're worried about it. But there, but there is a there is a, a smart people who don't aren't just worried about it because they read it in the papers. Look, I said they they're worried. I am fifty two years of age. Right. And I have been listening to this for 52 years, <laughs> that a United Ireland is just around the corner. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying that there is a there is a concern, isn't there, that it's... That well, it's... it not be much better for us to focus on what is positive about the place in which we live. Mm-hmm. And that's why I set up the Together UK Foundation, to yeah. talk about the union in a positive way, to talk about the fact that we are stronger together, and let's use that power, whether it's in defence, whether it's in e- economics, whether it's in reacting to what happens. I mean, I just think there is a huge opportunity for a positive case to be made for the union instead of us being dragged along listening to a United Ireland would be nirvana for everybody when we know it wouldn't be. When we know it would be so disruptive, bring huge instability at a societal level and at an economic level. And I think that people really need to get real on that. Yeah, and and part of that is this, uh, this sort of getting over what happened in the 70s in the troubles and the and the and the sense of this sort of historic memory and not coming to terms with it when you were first minister i think you didn't go to dublin to commemorate the easter rising because you're like why would i go why would i why go would do I that? commemorate the easter yeah. rising but but this is a but this is these are things <laughs> that if 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 an irish state a future united ireland was to exist you can't have things like that and have a, mi- a million unionists in in or a million people in Northern Ireland who think of themselves as British having being asked to celebrate things like that. The the, no, the right. Irish Republic would have to could change completely, not just in in small ways. It'd have to ha- sort of think of itself in a completely different way. It'd have to have a different history, a different under- a different narrative of what its history actually is. It couldn't celebrate the Easter Rising and all of those things. No. No, it couldn't. But I mean, that's not going to happen because there's not going to be a United Ireland. I mean, that's the reality. So, I mean, I think talking about those hypotheticals is actually lending support and credence to the fact that it may happen. Right. You just think your your views don't talk about it. No, it's not don't talk about it. I just think putting hypotheticals like 
I mean, I, I listened to some in the United Ireland movement saying, what is it that we need to give to unionists to make them come along with us into United Ireland? And that is a fundamental mistake on, on this level. There is a difference between being British mm-hmm. and being a unionist. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to be British the, the day I die, regardless of where I am in the world, because that's who I am. I'm British. But you can only be a unionist if you're part of the United Kingdom and if you're in a United Kingdom structure, because that's a political structure. It's not an identity structure. So trying to say to unionists, oh, well, do you know what? You can have the 12th of July in this new Ireland and <laughs> it'll right. be it'll be like, I mean, that's not going to appeal to a lot of people who are unionists because they're not orange culturally anyway. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, it's just so bland and basic and, and people do not get that. I'm a political unionist. I believe in the United Kingdom. But that's different from being British. I'll be British regardless of where I live. But I guess that's the same for if you're a political nationalist and yes. you, you live in the UK. Like yeah. you, you can, you can still carry on being a political Well, they'll union. always be Irish. Those people who are Irish nationalists living in the UK and choosing to live in the UK, by the way, a lot of them come to London. They want to live in London, but they still describe themselves as Irish because that's who they are. But you said previously that you would you would leave Northern Ireland, I think you said, and move to Britain if there was a United Ireland. And I, I know, I know in, in Dublin, there were some people who said, oh, the problem with that is that it, it's, it sends the message that you can't be British in, in Ireland and therefore, well, how can you be Irish in Britain? No, the, the, no, well, you see, and there is a fundamental problem. I'm not talking about my Britishness. I'm talking about my unionism. How could I be a unionist living in an all-Ireland state? I couldn't be. That's the reality. I could be British living in an all-Ireland state, but I couldn't be unionist. Yeah, but, you know, I, I guess that's just something that would they would say, well, tough. Exactly. (laughs) Well, on that, it's been great to talk to you, Arlene. Thanks for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thanks so much for listening to These Times. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share with your family and friends. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.